0: You know, the way we kind of look at it or I do myself is, you know, you should be able to fight the perfect fire in a single family, one story residence, a two story residence, uh, you know, a two family residential style, a multiple dwelling, a strip mall a hotel. You should be able to fight the perfect fire before you ever get to that fire ground.
1: Firehouse Vigilance presents The Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. It's Corley Moore, Firehouse Vigilance, Weekly Scrap number 106. My guest tonight is Jim McCormack, a 30-year veteran of the fire service, not only the president, but also the founder of the FDTN Fire Department Training Network. He retired as a lieutenant with the Indianapolis Fire Department, where he was assigned to Ladder 7. He has conducted training basically at every place you could possibly want to conduct training. Um, In 2007, he was recipient of the FDIC Tim Brennan Training Achievement Award. I am super excited about this conversation (coughs) this evening. So, my brother, Jim McCormack, welcome to Weekly Scrap number 106.
0: Thanks, Corey. Thanks for uh, having me and being persistent to get this thing finally off the ground here so this should be a good time
1: A 100 percent, but i am super excited i'm like she's in like a kid on christmas so uh is there anything i missed in the intro anything you want to add that i i should have said
0: no that's more than enough
1: to everybody logging in get your questions ready i'm excited yes they're already logging in we're getting it going i'm gonna catch you it says joe gavita says it's time for church Dirk Yaniak said, good evening, gentlemen. They're listening from Madison, Indiana, from Jasper Miller. Smoothbore Cartel said, the best in the business right here, man. Guy Hall said, good evening, also.' So we're already getting going. Lots of comments already started and fired up. So get your questions ready for Jim, and we're going to kick this off because I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to lead it off and say everyone who goes to FDTN and participates raves about the quality of the training you provide there. Talk to me about how it came about. Just kind of just a broad strokes go. So,
0: um, so the the training site itself uh, was kind of part of the journey. The network began in the mid nineties. The uh, training network and it started with a newsletter that you know we still put out um, every month, and it was really uh, the newsletter was mainly a way at uh, trying to I guess. Uh, make a concentration of stuff that would help firefighters you know, there was a lot out there, firehouse, fire engineering, fire, rescue, the, you know, the large format at the time. And, you know, two things about them. One is I always liked looking at the ads, but I would rather just get an ad booklet uh, to not interfere with the reading. And the other was there just wasn't a lot of uh, reading. There was a lot of material and a lot of articles, but there was very few. It, Felt like that would talk about how to do the job nice. you know there were certain columns you'd go to all the time like tom brennan or vince dunn was always you know in there but then there was all kinds of other stuff and um not just a lot of firefighting stuff so that was always the goal behind um the newsletter was just to put out something that guys could read and uh it would be worth the time and, and the time you know, was just a short article. They always said, you know, short enough to go to the bathroom and, uh, take a read and leave. And right. that's always kind of been the, you know, the, th- I guess the end goal of the newsletter. So we did that, um, start in the mid nineties. And then, uh, I ended up moving to Indiana in 98. Uh, my folks were involved with FDIC and, and I was kind of working in the background. So I, I met some guys out here and, I went to uh, recruit school in 98, and they, at the time, had a flashover chamber, which, if you think way back then, there wasn't a lot of them around. And it just kind of intrigued me that, you know, it was this fixed little container, but only for people that were in the Indianapolis area. There was nothing else out there. So, you know, with a crazy idea, a couple of us said, hey, why don't we just build one and put it on a trailer? So we did that. And hauled it all over the state for a couple of years. You know, we were busy nice. every weekend just jamming people through it. Um, and the more we did it, the more we found we could do other things with that container. So we ended up building a second floor and uh, <laughs> did survival training and, you know, VES training out of the back. Anything that we could do for skills and, and light those fires inside, we would do it. Um, and it was all in an 8 by 20 observation chamber basically so um so we we did it for a while and enjoyed it but just the stress of doing it was a it was the Flintstones version for sure you know we had to have floor jacks and six by sixes to jack it up it was comical but at the same time you know it was like it was a lot of work
1: and getting it done but definitely not designed to get it done
0: yeah and so um so then You know, I kind of set my sight on trying to find a piece of land. And, you know, in early 2000, we found a piece of land and then just started the slow process of kind of building it out. And um, at the time, we were doing a lot of survival and rapid intervention team training. So that first building that we built, um, we really designed kind of to handle 24 students at the same time without ever interfering with one another. And to have it kind of realistic to the buildings we would go in. So that's really how it came to be. And, you know, I think the last hurrah for the trailer was going down the road and the middle wheel of the triaxle, you know, went off in the median. And it was like, you know, I'm tired of hauling this thing around. So we parked it and uh, it's really never left the site after then. And we've just kind of built from that point.
1: So that was the 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 origin point was the original trailer.
0: Yeah, the trailer was it. And then we used it up until 2010 on the site until it was finally um, done. So, you know, a lot of people ask about the longevity of these containers. And, you know, that container, we lit so many fires in it. And it really lasted from 99 till we finally retired in, in 2010. So 11 years. And, you know, we had a couple on site that lasted 13 before we get away with them. So uh, you know the the one nice thing is that we we just kind of got into light and fires in training real early, and we've kind of you know stuck with that because we know it does make a difference to people right away
1: thousand percent so it the dirty dozen you can kind of say on a container is the is is the point where you get to give them the last rights
0: yeah I mean that's what we've done, and we've used some up sooner and you know we still have some that last where as much as i uh I'm not looking forward to it. You know, one of the first buildings we built uh, in 2006 is finally at the point mm. that we probably have to rebuild it. And, you know, I've kind of hesitated each time I go in there and re-drywall it. I think, oh, we get another year out of it. But it's it's kind of at the point that we could probably use it. But now it's back to that, you know, is the trailer overloaded? Wheel right. going to fall off. <laughs> you know, it's probably time to just... You know, bite the bullet and kind of redo that, and sure. you know, then it'll last forever. You know.
1: So, talk to me about your approach. It's simplistic, but real-world, hands-on training. How did you develop this model, and how has it changed over the years, or has it?
0: So, um, I don't really think that you know, I personally didn't develop it, or you know, we as a group didn't develop it. I think that the the people that are all kind of assembled at the training network have always stuck with basic basic skills and you know of all the guys and some of them the best in the business they've never come up with gimmicks or you know you know other techniques they've always stuck with those simple basic things and i think back to the early years of learning stuff it was never something fancy it was always the mechanics of that basic skill and I think probably a lot of asking why, you know, why does it work? You know, show me what it's supposed to do and then being interested enough to really get a true understanding of those basic skills and you know, to fast forward, you know, to the other question, have we changed? You know, I could say we're gonna run a class next week and we'll be teaching the same stuff we were teaching in two thousand. Right on. So it you know, we don't feel it has changed and You know, nothing revolutionary has come along to make a hose stretch any better than the things they were doing for successful hose stretches back, you know, way before we even started doing this. And somehow, you know, I guess there was too many forks in the road where people went different directions. But at the end of the day, it's simply hard work and practice, um, I guess, with different pictures or different uh different layouts in front of you and I I think that's probably what we've been able to do to maintain the approach of simple basics Uh, you know I kind of say if you come to an engine class you'll stretch a lot of hose from a hose bed and you'll stretch a lot of charged hose in a building around obstacles upstairs downstairs around corners and if we told you, you're just going to do that for three days, you'd probably never come. Uh, but the funny thing is, guys come for three days and then they want to come back for three more. Yes. And all we've done is make them stretch hose over and over and over again. But we've given them a different picture in front of them every single time. You know, right they might on. do it in this building. They might do it in this building. They might do it in another building or go back to the same building with a different layout. But all they've really done is. Is tried to master or perfect the art of hose movement in a building so that they're successful at getting to the fire room.
1: No, I love it. Okay, are you ready for your first question coming from the audience? Yeah. Yeah. And this is coming from Kyle Romagus. He said, Corley, ask him about the certification balloon. I don't know what that means, but I'm supposed to ask you. So.
0: So. Uh- <clears throat> So, you know, certification, that's a big thing people are after. And we've given a certificate every class to every attendee um, that we've had. And we truly feel it still means something, even though it's a piece of paper for us. Uh, it means something because we won't give a certificate if, a, if somebody doesn't finish the class. That's just kind of a, a pride thing with us. Hell yeah. But in the early years, we had a, a second certificate we would give knowing that people came for the certificates and it was a balloon that said, this is your certificate from the Fire Department Training Network. And we would tell them that if you came for the certificate, then just fill this balloon up when you go to a fire and throw it at the fire. And it might actually do something to help you. Other than that, the certificate's worthless without the training.
1: Very nice. <laughs> how
0: so many, we haven't reprinted them.
1: Okay. Okay. I was going to say, how many <clears throat> have you passed out? Um,
0: well, we passed out a lot, but then we, we hadn't reprinted it, you know.
1: No, that's fair. Now, I want to say your standard. Your standard. Um, Chief Isaacson says this. He says, and I quote, this is a quote from him. He said, he is the number one in the world of vocational firefighter training that sets the standards so high there really is no number two. So explain to me your standards and what they mean to you.
0: Uh, You know, I would say uh, I think that, first off, I think the level – that guys get is from all the people that come in and help, you know, it's not just me for sure, but, um, I do have, I have pretty high standards and I think along the way, and I tell this to people all the time is, you know, never lower your standards, but you better learn how to adjust your expectations Mm. because that's a big thing, um, that gets a lot of guys frustrated in the firehouse, but, you know, for the training end of it, it's if we believe something should be done a certain way then we go out of our way to set things up for guys to successfully try to do that but along the way there's plenty of places where they could perform poorly knowing that they'll get another chance to try to you know perform successfully so the standards i just think that You know, we we kind of hold the line on it. If this is what you're supposed to achieve, then we're going to get you through that. And I think that probably separates a lot of people in the in the training world, I guess, is a lot of times if a student can't do it, it's not about the student. You know, the first place I look is to the guys handing off the material. And were they able to recognize that the person needed some kind of guidance or help? Um, and then move them along without stopping them in the middle of a group of people and making them feel uncomfortable. So it's kind of a testament to all the guys that are out there handing material off all the time. And, you know, I am the, that guy that is the quality control man, I guess. You right. know, if something's kind of sliding or we tend to maybe get that organizational drift where it gets off the rails slightly – Um, You know, part of my job is to make sure it doesn't get off the rails um, and to identify it well before it's even at that point where it's teetering. So I don't know if that answers it, um, but, uh, you know, I I would say that we just have these strong beliefs that uh, this is what will help people in real fires. And then we try to make sure that we put them in real fires and allow them the time to practice and make mistakes, but then not make mistakes, and try to meet those objectives. And you know everything that we do out there does have an objective. The thing is, a lot of people don't know what it is, and that's okay because you know we don't sit there and teach a class like that. Uh, but at the end of one class, you know, while we end with fires and we end with engine and truck companies performing simultaneously. Uh, You know, one of the objectives of that class is to have a truck company be a second do truck and vent a roof on a second floor fire. So that's that's an objective. But in the training, we would never tell guys that's what they're doing. They'll show up and tactically they'll vent that roof on the right type of fire. They won't vent it on a first floor fire. Because we probably wouldn't want them tactically to do that in most instances. So I don't know if that, you know, I kind of get waylaid a lot. No, no.
1: I'm telling you, you answered the question in the first 30 seconds. Then everything beyond that was just icing on the cake. And I mean that as a high compliment. Everything from, um, I'll just try to fill you in on what people said here, which is good quote, thumbs up, facts, great instructors equals better, great students. That's truth. It's on the trainers. We are only as good as our instructors teaching us. It's a great philosophy, Jim. So, no, 100%, you answered the question beautifully, sir. Um, and, and beyond. I think, what,
0: I think what ends up happening, and it goes back to that standards, I guess, is that, and this is, um, you know, we're, we're just a group of guys doing something we love doing, so it comes pretty easy. And the other benefit is, uh, you know, a lot of guys had a lot of fire duty in their time. So they knew what worked and what didn't. But I think in a lot of training today, the standards are lessened because the capability of the trainer is not what it really should be sometimes. So it becomes difficult to, uh, you know, I'd say, for instance, for 25 years, we've uh, used a wire box for our written survival training. Right. And there's probably 220 feet of 14 gauge wire in every box. Ask the guys coming in who wants to wire it. And you'll say, well, I'm getting in a little later tonight. I hope they're done. Right. Um, but the reality is, you know, that goes back to that standard. No, it's got to be this pattern. It has to be correct. It's got to be tied correctly. And then the the reality is when students get in front of it, It's our job to get them through it. And it's not to coach them through it, but for us to get them to get themselves through it in a positive way that they take a lot out of it. And I think as I've seen entanglements props morphed over the years, I always see the boxes like we have, but then I look at the wiring pattern and it's like, you know, what happened to the wires guys. And I think a lot of it becomes, uh, lowering what they could get out of that training, maybe because guys handing it off might be uncomfortable with somebody getting stuck in there. So I I do think, and I I could say that for a lot of different things, um, but it is that the, the level of those guys out there that do the training at the network, they're able to see in all different kinds of students the things that they need help with, and they can just Kind of direct certain stations to help those students, but then if there's eight guys in a group, they'll recognize the eight different things that eight different people need and never get off course in training, still keep it in the timeline that we need. They'll still get them through and sometimes multiple reps and have time to have a talk about it afterwards and send them off to the next one feeling better wow. and learning
1: something. No, no, that and 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 with that being your standard, that's amazing. Now, now. Before I have a whole bunch of stuff I want to throw at you, coming from the audience, so I want to get to it. But I want to ask you this question, which came up as as I listened to you talk, which you talk about the uh, the the changing of the standard on the wire prop. Is it just a, um, in your opinion, of course, I'm asking you, uh, just a approach to failure in training where failure, like they try to avoid letting people fail to learn or not not telling them that failure is the point, so we can get better. What 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 do you think is the reason for that that lowering of the of for for a perfect example the wiring diagram?
0: So, you know, honestly, I think it's just um, trying to get more people through, and not being comfortable recognizing that a guy needs. You know, I tell guys all the time. You know, a joke in the train the trainer class we do there is. You know, I'm big on getting their first name when they go in the box. I want to I wanna talk to them uh, by name just to let them know, hey, I, hey, Corley, you're doing great. And, you know, we joke and talk about it and you could have done the worst possible job I've ever seen in the wire box, but I'm never going to tell you that. I have to be your cheerleader too, you know, and there's a way to be a cheerleader and not take away from what they're trying to do. And so in doing that, I think you learn how to get people through difficult skills or stations that they're performing instead of just changing the station to meet your ability to deliver it. And I think that probably it is, well, it's just a, if you're not comfortable delivering it at that particular difficulty level, uh, it's not even about failure. You know, it may be because they can't perform it, but, Truly, as I said earlier, I would always look to the guys handing off first to see, you know, maybe maybe we miss something in the delivery or the setup. If guys aren't able to perform this, but I think with that wire box example, because it's a tough one, right? Um, the reality is, it's just probably the best tool we've had to help guys become better trainers because they stress out if a guy gets stuck. And they don't want the guy to get stuck. But then you constantly have to tell him, you know, don't don't tell him to move this wire or that wire because that's not going to help him. Right. But just sometimes that voice might help him. And so I, I think at the end of the day, sometimes a lot of things get the level of difficulty gets lessened because guys have tried to do too much rather than focus on a few things that they got really good at delivering and they deliver them so well that no level of difficulty is going to be too much for them to help students get better.
1: Right. (laughs) Okay. I do want to hit these before we get too far and I got a mark. Tony Nunez asked a question. This is from way earlier. Is it, is it okay? Hold on. Give me a second, because I'm wrestling with what uh, the internet. But ba- basically, Tony asked, "How many burns do you think, if you had to guess, you got out of a box?
0: <clears throat> out of a box? Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I don't even know. Um, you know, I could say thousands for sure in some of these containers, and um, I, I really don't know. I." I don't even know if I could go back and figure out how many we've done. You know on a, so the on the class that's we just finished, we did hundred and fifteen fires in three and a half days. And so uh, that was in different buildings. But you know, in those early years of the flashover chamber, we were doing five or six burns a night on at least a Friday night and a Saturday night. And we were doing it, you know, when it was good weather over and over again. Um, The building I talked about probably rebuilding, you know, coming up, was the main building we used at at a time it had 15 burn rooms in it. I think we're down to 11. Uh, And that was our main burn building because we had all those rooms and we needed to have so many fires at the end of a class. You know, we had eight fires in a day. Or 12 fires in a day um so we just did it over and over again and so i i honestly i have no idea but you know it's a lot no absolutely i, I think that uh you know for for somebody considering containers i'm not sure they'd ever burn in them quite as much as we do in a lot of them so i don't think you know those things wearing out from burning is going to be the issue i think that the the, uh, the amount of work it would take to do as many fires as they're considering would probably be the limiting factor because they'd have a tough time finding enough guys to put that much work in.
1: yeah, okay, no, that's fair, That's fair answer. Dirk Janieck says, "How do you become a great instructor, or better yet, how do you pick your instructors?
0: So um, you know, I think the way that you get better at doing it, is to do it over and over and over again and I, I think that um you know you do have to kind of stay in a lane you know that whole master of all trades you know jack of all trades master and none type thing right you know we have guys that do the engine stuff we have guys that do the truck stuff we have fewer guys that can do both of them um and usually those guys that do both of them um you know, they can plug in in most places, but they're a rare commodity. And, um, you know, the guys that focus on. So I take a guy like Timmy Klett, who does a lot of the engine stuff. I don't think there's a better guy out there doing engine stuff. Um, and that's what he does over and over and over again. And he doesn't do crazy stuff. It's about moving hose, stretching hose, doing hoarder operations, doing uh, two and a half operations. Uh He could do the truck stuff, but he doesn't do it. You know, and that's with a lot of the guys. Uh, You know, Sandy Lassa could do the engine stuff, although he wouldn't want to. Uh, And that's what happens with most guys. They stick in their lane, you know. And so, but I think the way to become better is to understand all of it. And I think a lot of those guys, you know, they went to enough fires at work that they understood what the other, faction had to be doing at a high level of uh, performance right in order for them to succeed on the fire ground so i think a global knowledge of the entire fire ground because that's kind of where we focus um and then doing it over and over and over and i, I guess having the patience or the understanding that it, it does become a grind you know guys go in and do it Um, and they, they don't ever lose sight of the fact that they know so much now that they still have to deliver it at the level of the student receiving it. And I think that's a big, big issue. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, forcible entry is a funny one because I see it all over the place and I see all these tips and, you know, techniques to do certain things. And then I see two guys not understanding how to hold in position a Halligan and then strike it correctly. Uh, and then move that halligan. And I was watching a, a video the other day to try to understand, you know, maybe what other guys think of or do. And in watching the video, all of the talk went to gaining leverage to force a door. But what was missed, and I think the thing that we missed or see the most is that the guy watching it intently picked up on, or could pick up on the fact that every time the guy was speaking about maybe the, the, um, the forks or the ads in the door, whatever they were doing, what they never talked about was that every time the ax hit it, there was slight movement with the other hand, pulling the halligan away so that it was keeping the right direction to get behind the door. Just
1: kept capturing that Right.
0: Yeah. And I think that's all taken for granted. And it's really the reality is those those people that are trying to learn that and perfect it, that's what they need highlighted. You know, not the main you know, the main, you know, this is the ads, this is where you hold it, this is where you strike it. They need that too. But if you don't teach them how to properly move that after every strike or with every strike, then you're never going to get that door force. You're going to keep bouncing the forks off the door and wonder why they never went in. And so I think that probably you have to have a mastery of the material that you're trying to hand off, but it may never have to become vocal. It simply has to be there so you can pick up on the thing that that student needs at that time to help that student learn it. And then you'll need maybe something different from your arsenal to help the next student in that set. And wow. so, you know, typically our classes, you know, we're dealing with eight students at a time. So while you'd love it that if you could say one thing and then let them practice, they all got it on the first round. The reality is it doesn't happen that way because everybody's different. Right. And everybody learns different and everybody has to practice in their own way. And so I think to answer the question, to, to be really good at handing that off, you have to have done it many, many times. You have to have some experience doing it for real. And and I do believe you can make a lot of that in training, but um, you still need some real-world experience. But you have to have the patience to not step in when a student's trying to do something. You know, you might not start that way. And I used to do a lot of rope rescue training, too. And, um, you know, the thing was, the more you do it, the more you learn to step back and watch other people perform, because they may go about it in the early portions of setup a different way than you would. But the end result is the same. And so I think a lot of times guys step in too soon, and they don't let students try to work through the problem. Because at the end of the day, they may get where they need to. uh, But if they don't, you need to know how to help them. And I think to go with that forcible entry a little more, I can't tell you how much of this ads technique I see in forcible entry. It's a function of forcible entry props. It's a, it's a function of a lot of things. Uh, but practice an ads technique on a door is not something guys have to go to some training event to learn it really, they need to learn how to actually force that door and get those reps. And so that's the difficulty um, that we're trying to achieve in the training, and then if you get them really fluent at that, then all those other things that are usually just tips or techniques beyond that, they kind of come to them on their own, which is even better for the learning environment it's because right. they, you know, that light bulb goes on in their head, and you didn't have to turn it on.
1: Wow. Okay, I got to catch you. I, I'm. I'm uh, I got a question from Kevin McCart. Before it goes away, Kevin McCart, um, he said, elaborate more on don't lower your standards, but learn how to adjust your expectations.
0: So I think it, it works, um, you know, just as much being in the firehouse every day. You know, the, the the nice thing about us talking together and, you know, the training that we do and that you do and a whole bunch of these guys do, and I, I know these guys as well, is that, you know, they get around like-minded people a lot. And what they have to realize is that, you know, while it would be nice to have all those like-minded people <laughs> on your crew at the firehouse, right, right? it's, it's not really possible. Um, so sometimes, you know, it is on you to develop your guys on a crew to get to the level of performance you want. Uh But if you think they're all going to get to where you want at the same time or even if they care to get there, you're kidding yourself. You know, unless you can put that crew together with those people. But you better learn how to get your expectations to where they slide because that's the thing that you're not going to be able to change. If you change your standards, then you've lost the game to other people. You've become the people that you didn't want to become because you changed your standards. But if you change your expectations and then just realize, and you have to do it, you know, I'd love to have a guy that could come up and maybe baseball bat swing the door on his own and get in that door. But I could, you know, look at the guy, you know, I I had guys along the, you know, through the years on my crew that I said, this guy's just not going to get it, whether it's that skill or some other skill, and I'm going to destroy myself if I think that I'm going to get him to the level I want him to perform. So, you know, you got a couple of choices, you know, the big, the big department, maybe the guy will move. Um, Otherwise you better find a way to get what you can out of them, but realize that is maybe not the standards that you would have. So, uh, but if you lower yours to his, then you've shot yourself in the foot and you're just, you know, not who you thought you would be or wanted to be. So I I hope that helps, but just um, for all the guys listening that, you know, you see at the different shows or different training events, just realize you're spending your time with like-minded people when you go to these things. And while you'd like to have that same level of interest back in the real world at the firehouse, you may not have it. So you have to kind of change something. Change the thing that you can put on them and not the thing that makes you, you.
1: Right on. No, and I want to tell everybody that's listening right now because I want to throw, I want to keep throwing your questions at Jim because he's killing it. Um, Facebook last week changed their format, and right now live, after about, I don't know, 30 comments, I can no longer scroll and see them. So if I don't get to your question... Do not be afraid to repost it, uh, Brett Lyle. You had one about how he selected his instructors. Please repost, and I will try to get to it. Jonathan Talon asked. He said, "Jim, what is your thought on earning respect back after losing it from personal mistakes?"
0: So that's a uh, that's kind of a tough one, and it just goes to hard, hard work. You know, it's um, the problem is if, if so it was. Based on previous mistakes, correct? Is that what the question was?
1: Yeah, basically, if you've made mistakes and kind of hurt your reputation, how do you get how do you get respect back?
0: <clears throat> so it's just uh, probably the grind of solid work and not trying too hard to worry about that. so if if you do the work and you continue to put that effort in and you keep making better decisions and good decisions, some people, you know, firemen are the are the worst. You know, they have memories like elephants, Elephant. and they won't forget anything. Um, but you can, through performance, change people's view. And, you know, it would depend on the exact situation. If there was something, you know, with a, one individual that really was a problem or something, um, and if that individual won't let go, then you're probably never going to get that so go back to your expectations question and say, you know, you might have to change your expectations or what you could get for that guy to, you know, look at you again in a different way. But I I do think through performance, you can get that respect if that's what you're looking for. Um, And it's, just going to come from that. I mean, there's nothing else that you're going to be able to do because at the end of the day, if we're talking about the firehouse or the fireground, it is performance that matters. The fireground, it's, you know, it's physical skill performance. The firehouse, it may be mental mental performance and how you operate or how you do things in the firehouse. So either way, it's a lot of hard work. It's consistency. It's holding your line and holding your values and keeping those values or standards that you have, you know, consistent right? and just doing things the same way. Um, and you know, once guys know that when we're talking, let's say about a crew or, you know, people in the firehouse, once they know that they know what to expect. Um, and you know, a guy one time, you know, he did something and, you know, as expected, I handled it just like he thought I would handle it. He didn't like the way I handle it. <laughs> and I said, you knew I was going to do that. He goes, yeah, I did. So I said, why'd you do it in the first place? And if you did it in the first place and knew this is how I was going to respond, then shame on you because, you know, I did that. But he also said, well, at least you're consistent, you know, and, and that was the thing. So that consistency goes a long way. Um, people get to know you. They'll They'll figure you out eventually. And if you made a mistake, and it was just a mistake, and you owned it, and I guess that's probably something we should have said early on: is you got to own it, right? Um, right. And realize you got to learn from it too. It's, uh, you know, if, if, if that's a big thing.
1: Right. No, absolutely. Because if you don't learn from it, then if you just keep making mistakes and you don't learn from it, then basically you're just a dumbass.
0: Yeah. Well, or, you know, it's certainly not going to get the respect you're looking for. You right. know, the thing about uh, making a name for yourself. Uh, or respect or whatever, you're going to get something. It may not be what you want, but you're going to get something. And that's the whole thing about making a name. You know, these guys want to, you know, become more important or something. And it doesn't really matter. You know, you just, you keep going. If you want to make a name for yourself, you'll make a name for yourself. And we tell guys all the time, it may not be the name you wanted to make. The one you wanted. Certainly making a name for yourself.
1: Right on. All right. Brent Lyle did repost his question. He said, ask g m how he has handpicked his instructors over the years
0: so and i I apologize because it came up earlier um so the you know the funny thing is is I'm not sure that they are <clears throat> they get handpicked um, which we have a lot of guys that have been there for fifteen twenty years almost you know the the whole time, and what ends up happening is that the guys there end up bringing other guys, you know, and a lot of times they come in uh, and one of the things is, you know, any guy out there is not below any one of them to do any task that's needed out there. And I think that's a, a big part of what makes it successful. You know, while they have to maybe go put a dry shirt on to get out in front of a student because they're soaking wet from building a prop, they'll be building that prop, or doing whatever maintenance is needed or anything in setup. Um, So the work ethic of those guys is there. But, you know, to take a guy in, just to take a guy in, it it usually, it doesn't really happen a whole lot. It's always somebody that somebody else knew and wanted to bring out and try. Um, Sometimes they work out and sometimes they just, they don't, you know. Um, But there's not a whole not a whole bunch of them. And I wish I would had a better answer. It's like, you know, we do get emails from time to time for people to help. And I'd tell you, part of the, the help issue with us is that, you know, for every guy we bring in from the outside, we could get two local guys, you know, for the same uh, cost for everything included, you got transportation and, and getting guys there. So sure. it becomes, you know, a fine balance of making sure that you can make everything work financially. Um, I think the biggest core uh, component of all the guys out there is their work ethic, number one. Um, and for a lot of the guys, cause not everyone out there is handing stuff off to students. You know, that's even a smaller portion of the guys. It you know, it doesn't work without all of the guys, right. Because there's an army in the background all the time. Um, but I guess those guys that are handing stuff off to students, it's their mastery of the material and th- the fact that at the end of the day, while we all may be different personalities, our end result or our standards are almost all identical. And so we want the same thing. We really go about getting the same thing the same way. And really the only difference ends up being, you know, your personality versus mine, your ability to articulate it one way and mine to articulate it another way. Um, And the other thing is uh, with those guys, there's a level of respect among them that they won't throw the other guy under the bus. Right. And, um, you know, they're not there. None of them. While they're all uh, very large names in the fire service, none of them are out there to make a name for themselves, and they never were. They were simply out there to share material and help guys learn material and get better at the job. So so that's really kind of how it comes to be. It usually comes (laughs) to be that this guy says, hey, I've got a guy. You know, I wanted to bring this guy and I'm saying, you know, okay, uh, probably can't do this class or this wouldn't be the right class. And we have some classes that, you know, we bring a lot of help in. But it's, you know, and it's a lot of guys that teach on their own elsewhere. Right. But we just bring them in and they're that army of support behind because it takes so many moving parts to keep the timeline on track for the students that they have. Wow. And, you know, the the other part of it is like and I would tell this to most anybody and you know, it happened to me, it happened to everybody else is you put your nose down, you do the hard work, you're there, you're consistent, you're listening, you're paying attention. Someday, you know, whether it's me or somebody else, I'm going to say, Corley, you think you could do this station today? Or I want you to do this station today. And then, you know, you'll probably, Ooh, well, I don't know. And the reality is I I wouldn't ask you to do it if I didn't think you were ready to do it. And you know we would never do that and then leave you on your own right but we would have had you around at other stations saying hey cool you got anything to add here um uh, and so it, there really is that development of the people inside any of the background people you know that are out there could fit in on almost any station um and that goes a little bit to the stations as well and it's like You know if we the training network was built on skill stations at the training site and what i mean by that is that we never knew if it was going to be me or you or aaron or mike or bobby teaching the station uh because maybe airfare was there maybe he was sick maybe he couldn't make it so at the end of the day the station had to be what taught the skills to the people Nice. The benefit of having Mike Lombardo or Bobby Presser, Timmy Klett, Sammy Lost, there's a whole bunch of them. The benefit of having those guys is what they added over the top of the skill station, the talk up front and the talk at the end. You know, there's 10 minutes up front and there's 10 minutes at the end of a station where, where you've got a 20 minute burn. So it's about a 40 minute station and it's the interaction that's the value add But if those guys couldn't be there, we have guys, you know, the whole host of guys could run that station if needed because it was really that skill. It was putting a guy in a search station in real intense conditions to search a bedroom and rescue a kid. And then it was another one that was to put a guy in really intense conditions to push further. And then a team has to rescue an adult and you could add a lot of value to that in talking to students. But if for some reason, you know, we just couldn't get those guys in that day, the station's still going to run, the students are still going to learn, but maybe those talks aren't quite as, um, quite as evoking, I guess. Sure. Sure.
1: Poignant. Yeah, absolutely. All right. More to throw at you. I'm trying to catch everybody. Because they're they're throwing a lot at you, Jim. I hope you. I
0: hope uh, I'm answering them because they don't. I never know. Sometimes you. No, know, man, so. you're
1: killing it. A hundred percent, you were killing it. Um, what? All right, I'm going to throw this at. Yeah. What is your? I'm just going to read the questions from Benjamin Peel. He said, "What is your best advice for teaching in your local department recruit school when you may have only done some true skills on scene a few times? I've always struggled with being asked to teach with only eight <clears> years <throat> on the cert, on the job."
0: So. Um, so, what I did say early, you had to have some knowledge of it. You know, it's, uh, you have to have some kind of street knowledge so you know it works or doesn't work. Sure. Um, you have to have a real solid mastery of the skill, and that only comes from training. You know, you have to do it over and over and over again, um, and you have to fail in training in order to learn. And that, that goes for all of us as well. I tell guys all the time you could force a thousand doors, and if you did them all correctly, I'm not sure you're ready to force that difficult door. Right. Because if you, if you flame out on that difficult door, then you really didn't learn anything in those thousand doors you forced. But, uh, you know, I would tell you, uh, it's always about the material. It has nothing to do with you. And I you know, almost said, uh, I listened to Trey Nelms the other day, and he said something similar. It wasn't taking that, but, you know, handing off how to perform a skill really has nothing to do with you and and you're performing it it has to do with them learning it so a recruit wouldn't know any difference but neither would an incumbent guy of 20 years if he wasn't good at the skill your delivery should be the same so first off you know you have to deliver the skill and that same skill of forcing that door stretching that line is applicable to the brand new recruit who hits the street for his first fire Or the 20-year guy who's got to stretch the same damn line to get to the same fire on the second floor. So I think your level of confidence in handing it off, but I think you can find confidence and comfort in the skill itself and talking about the skill. And you don't ever have to talk about what you did or didn't. You know, the whole thing about, well, I did this on this run and this is what it was. You know, I don't ever talk about that. I, I I often wonder if it's just my memory or what. But guys have elaborate details of runs they went on. And I can't remember what I did 100 feet away and told myself I had to remember when I get to the door. I can't remember that no, sometimes. Yes, so I love
1: that.
0: <clears throat> so um, just keep it about the material and be so good at the material that you can handle the questions that come your way. Don't bullshit them. Don't try to fool them or fake it. And if you only know this skill this way and it's solid and it works and you teach them that, then until they start to gain more experience through training and doing things, they're going to have to experience their own failures. But if you give them a skill that you did 50 percent of the time it worked and 50 percent of the time it didn't, then you probably shouldn't have been teaching that material in the first place. Right. So I don't know if that helps, but oh, you know, 100%. learn the stuff inside and out, and just talk about the stuff. And at the end of the day, because we do believe in the basics and the simplicity of them, the stuff is pretty simple. What happens is that when you combine the skills into a sequence of things that that skill is involved in, right? That's what's not practiced enough. So what's you, you know the let's say forcing a door if you force a door and you're up next and you go into rotation on a force of entry prop well that's all well and good if you're forcing a door on the front of a commercial bill let's say a residence or whatever a difficult door you're trying to get in and the host team is right behind you they've just flushed your line they bounced it off the building you got wet and you're still not in the door that's a different environment and the pressure of that environment better have been practiced somewhere else, because if it hasn't, you won't be able to handle the pressure of performing that skill. At that point, yes. so it's kind of amazing that when you add heat and smoke to any of these skills that aren't performed in heat and smoke, it's a totally different ball game. until they're able to perfect the skill that they learned without heat and smoke in an environment that they'll actually be working, which is heat and smoke. And I think that's something that's kind of missing. So so hopefully that kind of hit it. You know, Dude, Focus on crazy. the material. <laughs> keep it on the material. And just always make it about the material, and you shouldn't go wrong.
1: I want to tell the audience so far, guys, um, unbelievably good job with the questions so far. You guys have been doing great, reposting them and everything. <clears throat> so far I've gotten to three of the questions I had for Jim. Everything else has come from you guys. I've got um, a request from Chief Ike. He said, please tell Jim the fire service thanks Becky for making FDTN happen. She's the foundation. So I want to
0: get- No, just th- thanks. You know, uh, Becky's been supportive of it for uh, for the entire time. And she kind of knew she was getting into it when we got married and just kind of went along. And it's been uh, it's been good for us. You know, we kind of built this thing together in the you know the back side of the business let's say while on the front side it's been built by all those other guys you know so you know i'm just a lucky guy to have her and all those other guys that support the whole thing you know
1: and i i do want to say i mean uh, this is my own observation of this is this this theme of humility that runs from uh not just you as the guy you know the president, founder, et cetera, but also when you talk about the framework of the support cast behind it, it's this it's this uh theme and this vein of humility that runs throughout, man, and it's pretty impressive. So uh I I don't know what I mean by that other than saying thank you for that. No uh, but- Kyle Romagus has a question here. I will switch it from the angry, but he said, Jim, in your opinion, what percentage of the students that attend FDTN trainings are really as proficient at the basics as they thought they were before they attended
0: you know i don't have a i I probably can't give your percentage number because it'd be hard to pin some kind of number on that but i can say that the perception bubble gets burst frequently and what i mean by that is that we go in with a perception of you know our ability is this big and then when we get faced with a task, you know, our skill sets, you know, probably at this level and that's all of us. Um, so everybody could use some practice. And what I would say, I, I came across this quote, somebody else posted it online, but it was an ancient philosopher or something said, it's impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. Mm. And that was some, you know, some guy hmm. way, way back. And So I think what happens is that, you know, we've been fortunate enough to get students that they come in and they're able to probably make that hiccup and and realize that bubble or the balloon just burst. Um, But they're given ample opportunity through the course of time that they're here to kind of mend that and actually become better, you know? And so it's, it really is. We, we, I I will say that we've been very fortunate that, um, we get students that want to come to the training, right? That that's a big thing. I've done plenty of department trainings and that's a completely different animal goes back to the other question, whether it's recruits or incumbents or whatever. Right. I mean, it's tough to hand stuff off, uh, but at the end of the day, if you stick to the material, And know that you're trying to accomplish it you will but you know that thing is you know we used to put prerequisites on a lot of things part of it to you know build a class structure and to to build a student base uh so we would do an engine one or a truck one and then have a prerequisite for the engine two truck two and you know over the years we talked and said you know we're not sure it really matters we give a prerequisite because if they don't go back and practice this stuff they come in at the same level they were before they got here for engine one. And they still go out after three days performing at a high level. The problem is if that three days is then separated by 400 days before they hit the next three days, right. then it's going to be that same level. And so, you know, that's, that's another thing about training and realistic training is it can buy you some of that work experience that you're not going to get at work. And, uh, you know, I've seen it many different times say, you know, it's just training. It's not real. And, you know, I kind of beg to differ with you. If I can create the stresses of a real fire ground and get you in your own head while you're trying to perform skills and get you past that in your head stuff to perform skills. Well, that's pretty real stuff. If there's real heat and real smoke, um, you're learning how to do these things in real fires. And so, you know, I don't I don't say that they're not real. Um, they're as close to real as you can get. Right. And if you think for a minute that the that the knowledge and learning and, and your level of skill performance is not preparing you to perform on the fire ground, then you're kidding yourself. Right. And, but the problem is you just can't do it one time a year. And that becomes the kind of difficulty because sure. it's just not easy to you know to go get it.
1: No, the know? amount of effort involved. Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention, yeah, uh, no, and it's
0: cost as well, you know. And I don't it, think it there's costs. anybody
1: here who's saying that uh, is actually <laughs> beating that drum whatsoever. Everybody is on point. Um, I do have a question that's along those lines, and I want to throw it at you. And it's I uh, go with it where you will. Wyatt Biles asked, training and teaching people that have the drive to go take classes outside of work. Uh, it seems to be easier to get full buy-in. How do you get the buy-in when training and teaching your department when they are made or forced to be there?
0: So um, I guess rule number one is like we've all been there in the department and said, you know, what kind of bullshit are we going to have to go to in training (laughs) today, right? Right. So if, if they can answer that question with some kind of BS, then you shouldn't be doing the training if it's worthwhile training and you have taken the time to not waste their time then i think they'll perform it you know the the thing is the you know department trainings interesting and i come from a bigger department where department training was kind of non-existent in the sense that like most departments If they do a recruit school, there's nobody left to do any other training. And so it's always left back at the company level, uh, which should be your job as an officer anyway. So but I think the buy in portion of it is, you know, just write down the five things that you hate about the last training session that you went to at the fire department. And if any one of those five things can be said about the training that you deliver, then you're not preparing enough for that the other thing is um don't overdo the amount of material keep it small and simple you know so one of the big failures is people go in and you know in the early early days of writ training writ training in fire departments was hey there's a guy in there go get him so they didn't teach him how to get him packaged they didn't teach him how to secure his air they didn't teach him how to do drags or get him up a set of stairs they just said go get him And so it never really was something that would lead to a goal that was finished and and kind of finished successfully. So just remember that we misalign objectives all the time. You know, We look at a group and say we're going to do some kind of training, and then we get that group in, and there's simply not enough time to do the the amount of training that you're trying to do. So in a typical fire department, you're lucky to get them for – Three hours, let's say. Right. You know, I, I would right. say we did department trainings in Indianapolis where we did a morning block and an afternoon block. They had to be at work at eight, so they couldn't even beat a training by nine. They had to get out and eat lunch because there had to be enough time for the next crew to get there at one o'clock. So three hours, and then in that, you got to take all the handshake and BS that's taking place at the front end and all the all that kind of stuff. You know, I haven't seen it for whatever. And then you finally get to training, so you're lucky to have an hour and a half, maybe two hours of training in that three-hour block, if you're lucky. And in that, what can you really perform for the numbers of people that you brought into training? So now, you know, if you have eight people, you know, eight people have to do something. And so, again, it's don't waste my time. Don't, you know, uh, uh, give me something that's just BS. Don't make me stand around because you're not ready. Don't be setting up training while I'm there waiting for you to give me training. All those things that you bitched about when you went to training that was horrible. <laughs> All right. Don't be doing it if you're going to deliver the training. And so will you ever get buy-in? I don't think you're ever going to get buy-in from those people that didn't want to be there. But if you can make them sweat, make them breathe some air, make them do something a little bit physical, and all of those three things were to accomplish a realistic task that would take place on a fire ground, then I'm not sure you're failing them in any way. They And, you know, the nice thing is they probably will go back and talk about it. And, you know, you could be called anything, you know, you want. I can tell you it happened to me plenty of times in Indianapolis. But at the end of the day, I got thick skin and big shoulders. And I never thought that we ever did anything that wasn't of value to those guys performing skills. They may not have thought it. They may never have used it. But the reality was you're dealing with 800 to 1,200 guys. So just because you didn't have to use it doesn't mean that one of those other 799 or 1199 might not have to use it tonight. So just... I hope that helped answer it. And keep it simple. Keep it to a single task um, but worthwhile. I say if you're going to do forcible entry and you let them force one door as a team, you're wasting their time and yours too. you got to do something to allow them to get a couple of reps to do it right. And then you have to have the discipline and the confidence to correct if correct it if it's done wrong which probably is the failing thing for a lot of guys trying to hand off you know to such a wide audience
1: sure sure dude a lot a lot to unpack there man uh yeah great answer to that question Uh, a phenomenal answer to that question uh john spear has a question for you which is of all the qualities you have seen in firefighters At FDTN, what are your top three that you believe contribute to becoming a solid firefighter? So top three qualities that contribute that you've seen in your experience. So I
0: think, you know, their desire to learn because they're there, Mm. their drive to actually get there, you know, and perform the task, you know, especially – coming to the training network you know it, the guys have to fly they drive a long way there's hotel rooms rental cars there's a whole bunch of costs to it um in addition to the cost of it and so the, really their their desire to learn their drive to get there and to truly learn and i think their perseverance to to actually stick with it and not get frustrated and give up so the, just you know probably a type of drive in a couple different areas that they need to keep doing it. And, you know, I think that's really what we see. I always tell guys very seldom do we get duds as students right? because of the effort it takes for them to get there and for them to actually perform. And like I told you earlier, it's like we would never get a certificate, not that it mattered about the certificate. That's nothing. But you don't just you know, bow out for a day. I mean, very there was something, you know, if a guy cramped up to the point that, you know, it doesn't make sense to let him finish the afternoon, then, hey, we try to get him to at least be around to hear the talks. And then we try to roll him back in. But, you know, you do that for a day and a half, then it's just like, well, why don't you maybe come back some other time? Because it's not really, you know, you're not really doing anything for yourself and you're certainly taken away from the other students at that point.
1: No, absolutely. No, absolutely. But
0: it's having the but it's having the discipline to hold to those standards and not waver from them, you know?
1: Yes, sir. Um I had a question, I want to throw this one at you, and it's um changing from the angry. It's Christopher Snow said, What training scenario have you seen been more humbling to the students than any other scenario?
0: You know, uh, I, I would say that we've got a couple in the RIT class and the uh, the rescue class that are pretty tough. Um, and really, at the end of the day, the level of difficulty is created by the students, not us, because of the performance during. And it's t- it's typically not skill performance as much as it is mental, mental? performance. Okay. And poor communication, which comes up in every one of our classes all the time and, and all the skills, their ability to communicate under stressful conditions um, and get what's needed to other people at the time that it's needed. So I, I would say that those really tank guys, and we do our best to try to make them successful and we have very few that we have to chop off and say it's not successful um and I, you know i would tell you that from a training standpoint you better have some uh some outlets in those scenarios so that they are achievable and what i mean is that you know in any scenario that you look at part way through and you say this isn't kind of going to make it all the way. Then you have to have ways to kind of chop off or close off portions of the scenario right. that the students never see um, <laughs> that allow it to end in a positive light. And, you know, the worst thing you could do is culminate in three days and then have a a non-successful final scenario.
1: Right. Just put and, the daubers in the dirt.
0: Well, you just. And so you better find a way to make it not happen. Right. In a way that makes it grueling makes it exhausting makes them earn every ounce of it but when it's all said and done makes them uh exhilarated because they perform something so difficult and now as they talk to everyone else they don't go high-fiving you know about how shitty a job they did uh, they go high-fiving about the effort that they put in and the little things that they overcame, they overcame and the big yeah. things. So that they came together as a team and got the job done. And so I hope that helps it, you know, in all of them, I could say, you know, the basement stretch for some of them that if I was to tell you, you know, the basement stretch, if you look at it in a, in a scenario fire is an exhausting difficult fire and uh, they get it done most of the time, but typically they'll run short of hose. And then they truly have to work to get the remaining 15 feet they need. And they're taking a beating while they're trying to get that remaining 15 feet. So I think uh, humbling-wise, I think guys are humbled a lot more internally on many of the drills because that's simply the level that we push them to all the time. But it's not humbling as a massive group on the outside afterwards. So... Hopefully, that helps a little bit. We're trying to push guys to and beyond where they thought they ever could go and at the same time allow them to learn and become better at what they're doing. And that does – it takes a lot of effort by uh, all the people at the training network to be able to push those guys past where they ever thought they could be and then come out and instead of beating their chest about it, simply – Taking the small victories that they overcame and understanding that maybe it is time to go put some more work in, you know, and if we can do that, I'd say that's humbling. And I'd say that, that it was successful.
1: Dude, it's a whole nother level. Listen to you talk about it. It's a whole nother level of a a, uh, philosophical approach to training. You know, it's not there. It's, it's all about intentionality. There is nothing that's done on accident and it's impressive. So to hear you talk about it. So.
0: It's it, you know I don't know why it's uh, I, I really and I appreciate that and I mean we we do spend a lot of time building the buildings and you know, I tell guys we don't ever put a wall or a door or a window in a building without previously thinking about what that was there for you know so I can tell you that the it, it doesn't really matter I could draw a map for you it's not going to help you when we light a fire in the building but you know the the stretch in the ranch to the basement it so it goes in the front door. About 20 feet, it takes a left-hand turn for 20 feet, another left-hand turn for 8 feet, a left-hand turn down a set of stairs, and about 30 feet till it can take another left turn, about 10 feet, another left 15, a right for 15, and another right into the fire. And so uh, that's on a setback up at the ranch of about 40 feet from the engine so that's not a day one skill obviously right right that's just repetitive stretches with corners and stairs and advances and and different lengths so all that's done to try to get them ready to perform that skill which is the fire they could have at home and then I can tell you, once they think they have it mastered, we'll just flip the stairs so they go a different way. And now it's a completely different trajectory <laughs> to the fire. Way. And they think that they got it licked because they've been in there before, and it, it just doesn't matter. So we're, we're in all of the training, in everything we've talked about, you're truly trying to get them to start thinking on their own. And if they can think and learn and come to a level of mastery of that skill, there's nothing that they couldn't overcome on a real fire. They also have to realize that they can't do it on their own. Right so on. that means, you know, one of the difficulties becomes this guys come to training and they're one guy from a department. And, you know, the, the beauty of having all these people come from all over the place is that you can see in three days that you could take people that have never worked together, that have some baseline n- level of knowledge and they can perform as a high-functioning team in a matter of three days, sometimes even a little less. The problem is when they go back home, they have to put the effort in if they were one guy at training because they have to at least do it for their own crew, and they have to find a way to get their crew up to that level of performance, which is a a daunting task.
1: No doubt, no doubt. Oh, man. (laughs) Dude, uh, this is uh, so much knowledge coming at, at Yes, I can't even say. Uh, Kyle, Smoothbore Cartel said it best right here, and I have to read this comment. He said, When you have John Spear, Todd Edwards, Kurt Isaacson, and Mike Kirby in the audience commenting, you know you have the right guest on tonight. And I wish I could let you peek into my brain every time one of these guys makes a comment and every time Jim answers, because that's exactly how I feel. It's like, where am I right now? But they're
0: all, you know, I would tell you, they're all doing the same stuff out there. And, you know, I think sometimes. I had discussions sometimes going back to that wire box. And I I talk about this because, you know, you listed all those guys, all those guys out there have the same philosophies. I think many times, you know, maybe they just didn't drill it down to looking at it that way, or maybe they just didn't talk about it that way, or maybe they didn't have someone like you asking the questions and then just answering, you know, honestly about how we do things. But so you know, there's this big thing out there about creating stress and, 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 you know, trying to stress guys out to be able to perform. And I don't think that you have to artificially do that. And so that's probably the biggest difference between, you know, the way we look at things and someone else. And it goes back to that wire box. And, um, I told you, it's about 220 feet. It's a ugly looking thing when you look at it and nobody ever thinks they're going to get through it. Um, but you know i've had conversations with plenty of people about how their approach would be well maybe they talk to him first about how you know it's not really that difficult you know and they you know maybe this and you know i could go on with what the conversations were but my whole point was you're stressing me out talking about it and i don't need that there's enough stress that they create if i lined up eight tubes and eight guys in front of those tubes Those guys are already self-generating stress. You don't need to create any more. And what you need to do is realize when the stress is starting to peak, you have to be so good at getting them through it to diffuse that stress and let them continue. You know, I have a compressor, I a compressor that runs out at the land. And every so many seconds, the compressor shuts off so that it can drain oil and water. You know, and so what it does is it goes from 6,000 pounds all the way down to 2,000 and then it builds back up again on its own. And so if you look at how you're dealing with struggling students, you have to be like that compressor. You have to be the thing that hits that reset for them without them knowing you hit it. And then that will then create more stress in them on their right. own, but the stress will be different stress. Right. And so once they start to do it, then it's just a matter of they can look at the stress or they can look at the success. And if they look at the success that they got six inches and they have that attitude to approach it, now they can get another six inches. If they looked at it and they got six or eight inches and they stressed out and they backed up again, and you don't somehow find that reset button to get them to engage again, then you really haven't helped them at all. So you, you would have been just as good to, you know, put them on some other station. But my, you know, my whole thing on that was don't, you don't have to create anything with this, all these people. You just make these props and you make these training sessions and the stations like they would be for real and then create the stressors that would be there for real. And then you don't have to artificially introduce anything, right? You just let them learn or you let them, make mistakes or perform poorly so that they can recover and perform better and if you can do that all in one station it's even better you don't want to end the station on a negative and have them walk away you'd rather end it on a positive and then like i told you i'm going to tell you you did a hell of a job getting through that box and it could have been the shittiest job i've ever seen (laughs) but you'll never know it uh until we talk about it afterwards right and you know we really wouldn't and the thing is then you get all those other guys, and even in that, you know, there's some learning points after the fact to say this is what a good team does. You guys were all helping him and giving him encouragement, and the only thing we have to do from time to time is tell a student, hey, don't tell them what to do. Just tell them, hey, keep going. You know, if you tell them what to do, and this is – we've seen this in students, and just understand this is that if you tell them what they need – and then they do it and then they move a little further, whether it's the wire box or anything. And then you tell them again, then they're going to move a little bit further and they're going to stop. And what do you think they're waiting for? They're waiting for you to tell them again. Right. Right. And so you're you're damaging them, them more than helping yeah, them. Like right. So star. you just don't do that. Right. Yeah. You let them do it. Like I said, you got to be their cheerleader. Um, and, you know, that could even be. You know, I would tell you that guys out here have mastered how to be their cheerleaders in high heat, heavy smoke conditions, so they never know it's us. You know, they just know that it's it's, and it's part and, and, of the operation.
1: And a big thing I'm getting from it is <laughs> it's it's all about letting them succeed, but it's not about blowing smoke up their butt. It's 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 about letting them succeed and not tearing them down.
0: Yeah, well, them- yeah, they have to, and they have to work to succeed. And they may get broken down, but it'll be broken down from their performance, not from anything we ever did. Gotcha. And, you know, that's an absolute no-no. And guys know it. You don't even have to say it. It's like the people coming in, that's not the way they do things. It's not their belief system. So it's, you know, you'd never see somebody lighten into a student for anything performance-wise unless it was something absolutely right. stupid that right. shouldn't have been done. And then you could probably hear it you know, where you are, if, if it happened out here, right? Because it will happen.
1: Fair enough. Uh, Dirk. Uh, now I'm going to tell the audience real quick. I'm using the angry emoji because when I scroll through these, there's a lot of them, guys, but when I scroll through them, I can see the orange real quick. Cause no one uses it, but me. So if you get it angry, it means I want to read your question. So Dirk asked, what does Jim think about propane training towers and theatrical smoke? So
0: we use fake smoke, um, where we can, I think if you use fake smoke and propane, you're going to learn pretty quick that the environment inverts and there's nothing up top and maybe a little smoke down below. But we're not, uh, we're not big advocates of propane. I do wish that we had a couple of propane tubes, let's say. Um, but my theory would be is that we would light the normal room on fire. And the toughest part of doing live fire training for engine work is being able to put fires out. You just can't do it because you can't keep rebuilding the fires once they put water on them. So some kind of propane would would work there um, so that we could ignite something maybe up high. They could hit it with a stream and then it would go out. But they would still have all the real smoke and heat created from the OSB and the palace and straw. Um, And then when the next crew came around, we could hit the igniter. It would flare up on that tube and they would do it again. You know, if propane's all you have, it's all you have, it's, um, it'll give you heat. I think your biggest issue is going to be to get smoke to, to play well with propane. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that you're going to find that you can fill thick, thick smoke to a point that it, it's going to create that. Now, but, you know, some of the elaborate buildings, you know, they have good smoke. They have big smoke machines. But a lot of times, if you just stand up, then you can see, you know, from the ceiling down to about five feet off the ground or four feet off the ground because the smoke was inverted when the propane filled up, and just there's too much pressure up there for that smoke to overcome the propane and the heat and everything. So um, if it's all you have, I would use it. Um, I I can tell you this, you know, there's a lot of people afraid of lighting fires, you know, in buildings. Like we do, and I don't mean if you know they just don't want to do it. They want some clean, re, you know, replenishable alternative like propane. We just don't feel that it it gives you what you need for those conditions, um, and you know they're pretty expensive systems in their own right. So I, I don't know if I answered the question. So I'm not like if that's all you have. Once again, if you create the right stations and and you know, put the right drills together, you can create a somewhat uncomfortable environment for them to perform sure, in. Sure, so do it. You know, if you could use propane and smoke barrels with straw, you might get a better result because you'd have a little bit more hanging smoke that's going to you know be an issue for guys. So you know, th- those are the those are my thoughts on it. Um, no, I think know, at the you- end of the day. They're just expensive. And, you know, we're a, we're a kind of a low budget operation. So, you know, we don't have the money or, or wouldn't spend it. You know, I look at a propane. I asked a guy, make me a propane ring. I had some guy call up from a company and he said, you know, maybe we could do something. And I thought that meant maybe he wanted to give me something to try. And that wasn't it when I called him. But I said, I'd like a ring that I can put in a window that has a nice amount of fire in that window. But I want to be able to move it from window to window. I want this prop. So on size up, they can say, hey, fire show in second floor, you know, Bravo side or nice, whatever. Nice. Yeah. Um, and he said, you know, we probably could do something like that. And he goes, you know, I don't know. I'd have to really work the numbers, but it probably costs around, you know, 15 to 18 grand. I said, really? I could buy nine containers for that. And I can just put a guy up there with straw and a smoke barrel. <laughs> and make him throw fire out the window if he had to. So I'm just not sure that the $18,000 for that prop came anywhere close to the value of 18,000 spent for nine containers and what we could do with that for 10 years. Right. And worry about it. Right. Well, so, and That's what
1: I was going to ask you was like, I get the, the and the, you answered the question beautifully, which is, Hey, if it's what you got work with it. But if you had the magic, I mean, if, if, if you had the budget to build what you wanted, um, I'm not I think you answered the question of of what you But I think
0: there. still guys guys still go, you know, for the other way. And I, I just don't think, unfortunately, you're going to be able to turn the minds, you know, that are driving what you get as a department. Most of the time we've had a lot of success teaching, you know, we have a class on designing those container props where guys come in and then they go back and they they replicate You know, the things we do here, which is what we want them to do, because for, you know, little money, I mean, little money, you could go out and be doing some real high quality training uh, within a month. You know, I'd say, you know, even within two weeks, if you had the drive to do it. um, But a lot of times the guys that come in that are just looking are being driven by people above them that don't want some ugly looking container and i and i tell you i was you know we paint the ones in front so they look good but the <laughs> ones in back that do all the work they don't look so good but we never wanted them to look good we wanted them to function and right so on. they function really well um but you know sometimes you get into those situations so you know hopefully like i said maybe if if you picked up throw some st- straw barrels in there if they let you do it obviously let you burn in the building anyway so right. some straw barrels would probably help you. And that gives you some of that more real smoke, you know?
1: Beautiful, man. All right. Here's the point. Um, Everything. I I basically got to my third question that I, that I wrote down out of, I had nine questions for Jim today. I got to the third one. Everything else came from the audience. You guys have absolutely (coughs) crushed it. And Jim has absolutely crushed it, fielding the questions and answering them. Um, So what I always like to ask is, do you have book or books that you think firefighters should be reading doesn't have to be fire related just what books do you think firefighters should be reading i love to ask this question
0: so i always tell guys the same thing it's like you know obviously i make a plug for the fire notes that we do because they're just you know fireman language um skill level but really i i tell guys you got those and i you know so the two books i really like to always go back and look at our uh, fire ground tactics, you know, from Manny freed years ago and firefighting principles and practices from bill Clark. And, you know, the f- fire ground tactics, I, I had them cause I had them out looking at them. So I'll show them to you. You know, this was the soft, the, uh, paperback of the fire ground tactics. And then everyone kind of knows this blue right. principles and yeah. practices. It was a yellow in the earlier version of it. Um, but if, if you go down and look at those, uh, I think they give you a, a, just a solid knowledge of fire ground operations. And, you know, I say, uh, I say that and then I say about training, you know, in the, in the training world, the fire service is doing a tremendous job teaching skills. You know, there's been such a flourish of guys out doing training and good quality training all over the place. Um, but most of the time it's skill based. And so what ends up happening on the fire ground is those skills have to be combined into some kind of operation that's taking place. And I think that because, you know, we're a a low attention span society in general, and when we do this one skill, you know, that's all we tend to look at. And that skill, like I said, that that forcing that door behind that engine company with heavy black smoke coming from all the openings or cracks in the building, the stress of that operation under real fireground conditions causes problems. But also, simply knowing the fireground, and I, th- I think that that's another one. You know, I said mastery of skills, but you have to have a mastery of fireground operations and. You know, the way we kind of look at it, or I do myself, is, you know, you should be able to fight the perfect fire in a single-family, one-story residence, a two-story residence, uh, you know, a two-family residential style, a multiple dwelling, a strip mall, a hotel. You should be able to fight the perfect fire before you ever get to that fire ground. Mm. And if you show up on that fire ground not having that knowledge, then you're probably – uh, going back to, you know, what Mike Kirby was on there, you said what he says all the time here is that good luck reinforces bad behavior. You're mm. probably getting by doing something, but it wasn't because you absolutely smoked it from start to finish. So those books, they talked about the fireground before all this other information got thrown in and they're still pertinent today. I mean, you can take out the pictures and those things, but the reality is those guys were putting out fires back then the same way they successfully get put out today. Um, But things that they did back then are maybe not occurring with the frequency that they should be on today's fire ground because this whole other information overload system became readily available. And, you know, now guys are not doing things uh, for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, when you do the things of old and fire buildings today, they really perform like the fire buildings of old. And, you know, you end up having successful tactics. So I'd say those two books, you know, there's plenty others you could look at. But, you know, they. I always like to go back. Maybe you've never read something back there that put it out that way. And then you take a newfound Look at the fireground um, and the coordination of of operations. You know we do uh, we do engine company training and truck company training. We do writ you know survival. We have people from um, small departments and large departments, uh, and the reality is, you know those large departments. Their view of the fire ground is maybe more like the skills being taught because the engine's doing the engine and the truck's doing the truck. But those smaller departments have to know all those skills intimately. Right. And then they have to kind of like mix and match the skills they need for that fire at that time because of the staffing that they have and because of the arrival time that it took to get there. And I think that you know a thorough knowledge of the fire ground, in addition to the skills for successful fire ground operations goes a long way. And, you know, there's new books out, but I haven't really found anything that lays it out in the simple terms like those did.
1: Nice, man. Hey, you can't go wrong, either Either or. But I want to hit this because you did touch on it, and I had one of, one of my questions that I didn't get to get to, which is um, FDT and fire training, how do you st- – I think probably my question is, what is the secret of your consistency?
0: Um, You know, it's a lot of hard work. I'll tell you that. We talked about it earlier, Um, but never enough hard work to make me deviate from it. But, you know, when I first got going with it, you know, I always wanted something that I could read that had pertinent information. And even today, I simply look at it to try to, you know, get something for your mind something for your skill sets and it's increasingly difficult to find material. Uh, and I do find a lot, you know, hell, I'll probably go back and reprint something from one of those books sometime this year, because I always think that it's good. Right. And the reality is when you read it, it's like, Oh, wow, that makes sense. You know, I'll do that or something. So, um, it, I guess one of the tricks has been, how to make something you've talked about over and over again, appear different enough for somebody to engage in. To grab. Okay. And you know, it's always a title. I was told guys it's the title and the first paragraph. If you, if you haven't captured me by then, then I'm moving on to the next one. And so even in reading stuff that I put in, I'm scouring the internet all the time and there's plenty of guys out writing stuff. Um, some, you know, I think I would use, some I just wouldn't. And, it, you know, it's not that it's not good or not, but maybe sometimes it's the flavor of it or how it might come across. There's, uh, in this day and age, you know, material-wise, that consistency goes back to that, I want to I find something in it that would help a guy today on a house fire or on a, on a you know, maybe a, a building fire, commercial building fire. And it really comes down to skills. And, you know, what's not written a lot today and hasn't been for a long time, there's not a lot written about the intimate level of skills. You know, I mean, it's just not there and certainly not the tactical approach to the fire ground. It's just not written a lot. Um, What there is a lot of is op ed pieces, you know, opinion based pieces. And there some of them are really good, you know, and that really I don't. I say it because it's a descriptor to say it was written as an opinion-based piece, but if it had been worked a little different, it could have been a, a you know just a regular article. Sure. And I, you know, I do take some of those and I try to rework them a little bit and ask the you know the people that wrote them if they mind. Um, and that's really it. And you know, so I guess diversity in maybe where the material was coming from but consistency in what the material actually is. So, you know, I'd like to get a whole bunch of different guys, you know, Timmy Klett could say something about engine work and so should, could uh, Kyle Romagus. And it would be two different personalities saying the same thing that when read guys might read both and pick up little things from both. Although it was the same thing from both, if that makes sense. So, and that's, You know, how do you do that over and over and over again? I guess it's just looking and knowing, you know, sticking to my rule of, you know, if you haven't captured me by the first paragraph, then I'm moving on to the next thing. And, you know, typically I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. My phone says, you know, I spend a lot of time on the screen, but, you know, I scroll down a little bit and then I just got to go on to something else or Twitter and Instagram. I look at all of them because they put pictures up there, but, um, you know, I find a lot of stuff there or you know, magazines or, you know, blogs and that kind of stuff. Um, but I hope that answered it. I mean, it's really, Absolutely, it's, yeah. it's just <laughs> fine. It goes back yeah. to the training, you know, it's how do you take a different snapshot of the same thing, and then get guys to want to pick it up, you know, so it's like, you know, that's the simplest answer to the same thing. And it's really, for 20 years, it has been the same material. So I guess that's probably it. It's, You know, it's the same material at the simplest of levels to try to hand that material off. So if, you know, guys are out there writing, keep it simple. If you're going to write and you type and stop, then you're done. The article's done. You know, that thing about I got to go back and tweak it. Forget about it. If you lost your attention span, just remember the 100 readers that are reading it. They already lost theirs, too. So don't make it, you know, too long and don't, you know, don't go crazy with, i find it amazing that guys use words and articles that most of us would have to go to a dictionary to look up and you know i a rule i've always had in writing is that if i write and then i stop on a word and i got to think oh did i spell that right then i choose words i don't have to go to the dictionary to spell nice because that's what most firemen sure 100 engage in right so Anyways, a, a kind
1: of side note. but They're Beautiful, man. Beautiful. I didn't. Here's the deal, man. I, like I said, I had so many questions. I wanted to ask you about your father, Big Ed. Being a legacy firefighter, I had stuff I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, selfishly, I had reasons to ask you about that stuff. Um, I wanted to ask you about your... But, <clears throat> long story short, we're at 90 minutes already, and I still got to get the five questions for firefighters. So I I have a thing we do on the weekly scrap. It's called the five questions for firefighters. So... The uh, answers are 100% your opinion. There is no right or wrong. And the points are arbitrary. They're completely passed out by me. So, Jim McCormack, are you ready for the five questions for firefighters? Yep. All right, here we go. Number one, what is the number one issue facing the modern fire service?
0: I just looked at these a couple hours ago because I wasn't, you know, I always look at them and I'm not sure where I'm going to end up with answers. I don't really think they're always that good. But um, so... I probably have a twofold answer. I would say one is there seems to be a declining work ethic in the majority of people entering the business. And I say that because I think entering the business seems to be more about its employment opportunity than the desire to choose this profession and get really good at it. So, you know th- th- i would say that if that makes sense it's just like i think i don't you know say the generational gap and all that kind of stuff cuz you could find guys that you know were born 15 20 years ago that would engage if you got them to engage and they would learn everything you needed to but i just think overall guys uh you know life's been made pretty easy for many and the fire department has become one of those pretty easy things to get on for great pay and great benefits and a great schedule and not much, uh, let's say daily accountability to keep you trying to get better. But you know, the other part of it is, and I I believe this for a long time and, um, you know, guys may kind of raise an eyebrow at this, but I, I feel that we are a blue collar trade being driven by white collar professionals at Mm. the highest levels of the fire service. And it trickles down and I don't think those two uh, groups ever truly align. So Mm. the masses in the fire service are the firemen, you know, for, for, you know, a descriptive term of, you know, I I would say um, that's the masses. Uh, There's plenty of blue collar workers in those masses that are just blue collar workers that go to work. They, you know. Sign in, they sign out at the end of the day. They'll do everything you ask, but they won't do anything more. There's plenty of people that will come in, um, and they're not going to do anything, and you're going to struggle with that standards uh, expectations thing daily. Um, And then there's others that are go-getters, self-starters, and they're going to be just fine. And, you know, you can deal with the last – you know, you can deal with the guys that will just do anything you ask, and you can deal with those go-getters for sure. It's tough to deal with the other ones, but you have to. But I think the reality is everything in this business is being driven towards professional as a term. And, you know, I saw it years ago, even when my father was involved and, you know, they were working in the late 60s to try to standardize training. And they did a hell of a job uh, when they didn't have all this Internet and everything else to put it together. But then I think it did become a little bit political and, you know, it, it started becoming to the point where, the guys in the trenches weren't necessarily driving it anymore. It was mm. the white collar guys. And I think the the problem with that is, you know, where everything's about credentials, about certification, about college degrees, about all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we had a degree program once for short lived. We've graduated two guys with a degree in fire ground operations. Um, but in all the talks, to the higher ed people and the uppers in the fire service, you know, my thing was, I said, you know, the whole thing is skewed. We look at it as a pyramid to this pinnacle of, you know, uh, you know, we need all this education and you do need some education at those higher levels, but the pyramid needs to be flipped over because really those higher levels of education are the very few and the masses are being sacrificed because of that. So, you know, that white the, the, the white collar professional view is you need a, a degree, but you need a degree in all this, you know, gen ed credits and whatever else they're going to give you. And you know, I talked to, uh, you know, some pretty high up people one time and they, you know, they just kind of blew me off. And I said, you know, this is the type of degree we feel that all firefighters need. Um, And he said, no, we got these degrees out here. And I said, you know, the reality is to all three of you, that degree doesn't do anything for the guy when he's on the 22nd floor of the building across from my firehouse. And we're trying to push down a hallway because the door was left open and the public hallways full. And I said, the degrees we're going after aren't helping us. But unfortunately, it takes fewer people at those upper levels to drive what we're involved with, if that makes sense. So. You know, I I think it's just I don't know as it changes. It comes down to the department level a little bit in the sense that let's just talk about the training building that we want. We want a functional one as department members, but maybe the upper administration of the department wants something that's maybe a little bit more legacy leaving or a little bit more, you know, uh, politically motivated or, or something so They get something that looks nice. You know, it's like, what are the the old beer? Tastes great, feels good, whatever. But I mean, looks nice, uh, you know, has doors, but it just performs horribly when you try to teach firefighters how to actually put fires out in real buildings, you know? So I I think it comes down there. So probably a high horse I was on there a little bit, but it's hurting the fire service. And I'm not sure um, it can be overtaken, but I do believe that in... You know, in the circuits that we run together in in and in the massive amounts of guys training, if they just hold their ground and do what they're doing, um, then maybe someday before we're all gone, we might be able to get degree programs that would be for going to classes at the training network or going to some other classes all around the country that have worth and value to a firefighter. Um, that might help him out, you know,
1: yes, and <laughs> i uh I don't think I've ever um been as ad- ad- adamant about how easily that is the max point of an answer i've I've received on question one um unbelievably good answer. I try to avoid hyperbole, I really really do, and that is one of the greatest answers I've ever heard on that. um yes.
0: So anybody out there that is involved in college systems um, that feels they have a little bit of input with the higher ups. I think that's what it's going to take to get something like this done. You know, the big colleges out there that are, you know, turning 75 percent of your life experience into 75 percent of your degree and then making you do 25 percent. they want no part of any of the stuff we just talked about. I've approached most of them. Um, so, you know, it's going to have to happen at a smaller level of uh, college, probably. But, you know, there's plenty of guys out there listening or may listen down the road. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm open to any conversation about that um, because it can, you know, we did it one time. Just, the, you know, the small group of us were able to pull it off. It took probably 10 years to do it. But it could happen, and it could set the fire service on its head as it relates to quality of learning that would make firefighters better prepared. You know?
1: Dude, man, the conversation, the conversations you're having, the conversations the people listening will have, and the, that is the drum that needs to be beat is to beat the business out of this blue collar profession. I don't know if business is the right word, but you know what I'm saying.
0: No, it's just this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. You know. Plenty of guys over the years have said it about we need to be professional and all that, and it's like I, you know, I take that um, as your as a degrading comment because I've not not been professional my entire career. So, you know, for you to think that I needed something else to say that, I think we just forgot that. We are performing, a, you, know, you know, a journeyman plumber, a master electrician. These trades have it, and they get degrees for it, but they're vocational degrees. Right, right. And they are able to use that piece of paper. And, you know, all we want is some degree to put on a piece of paper to, you know, accredit this or you know, accredit that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's not making any sense. It's checkboxes for checkboxes, when at the end of the day, those checkboxes don't equate to performance, And again, we go by the the Mike Kirby statement of good luck reinforces bad behavior every day of every year in our fire service. uh, And we get away with it. And, you know, only a few times a year do we not get away with it. And then we try to put off, you know, that couple of instances for reasons out of our control. And, you know, sometimes we just got to look at a different way and say, Maybe we take the bull by the horns here and, you know, we can right this ship, you know?
1: I love it. (laughs) I have never heard. Yeah. Uh, You crushed it, Jim. uh, Number two. Number two question. I think you got max points already for the rest of them, but uh, what is the thing you are most excited about for the future of firefighting?
0: You know, I think think it's that there's so many guys – continually trying to get out there in either attend training or handoff training. You know, I mean, there's just, it exploded over the last 15 years, maybe right. a little bit longer. Um, and there's just so much uh, accessibility to quality training. It still takes drive to go get it, but there's plenty of that in a lot of people as well. And just understand, again, I, I say the circuits because, you know, we go to the same circuits, all those guys listening you know there's there's all those same guys are always at different places all the time, and it's those guys that are pushing this and driving it you know they're they're the ones out there that are gonna bring those people in and um you know it is the new people that come in that you're not gonna get all of them you you know you get a class of twenty. I think New York used to say they had the 500 club or, you know, 5% or something. And I I say it's, it's probably less than 5%, but you know, if you get a group of 20, you'll be lucky to pull one out of that and say, that's going to be the guy you'd be hopeful to pull 20 out or five. um, But just keep doing everything that everybody's doing and don't lose those guys because maybe they, they had shitty instruction, to get involved and their performance reflected that and you didn't stop and take a few minutes to really assess it and assess the individual you know i i think um I, it never came up in the conversation so we didn't hit it but human nature is kind of an interesting thing right. um and it has a lot to do with training and maybe some other time we'll talk about it but uh you know when you look at people and and what they default to as humans Uh, you know, you can find good traits in those guys. And a lot of times the missing traits for the fire service is, uh, just because they weren't given those traits anytime up to the point that you met them, you know?
1: Absolutely crushing it, man. Um, absolutely. Uh, the best rank or position to be in, in the fire service. So
0: I think it's, uh, myself, I think it's company officer, it's you know, being a company officer is a funny thing. You know, <clears throat> I had a, I had a tremendous time being a company officer and I al- also had the worst time of my life being a company officer, um, Ooh. probably led me to have a heart attack and, uh, stress me out. But, um, the funny thing is, is, you know, you can be a firefighter and, you know, hopefully you can find a busy place and go to fires. Uh, but being the boss and, and, for me, I always wanted to build a crew. I wanted to build a crew that was second to none. And I, I think I accomplished that. Um, but it comes with great pain, let me tell you. And, uh, but, but I think being able to do that, and then performing on the street, uh, and just going out and, you know, enjoying, you know, that working together. So I, I think that I say company officer, and then I laugh and add this on the end is like towards the end of most guys career even as bosses you know they just want to get back on a busy engine or truck and just go to fires and you know not have any of the worry or, or there, stress. yeah there's so, the, I, uh, I feel that so I, so i do think that there's something that you know maybe for being a good officer down the road you should get your pick of backstep assignments if you want them if you can't get the busy companies and uh ride your career out doing that
1: I feel that in my soul. The farther along I get, I'm at 24 years. I hit 25 next year. Um, I feel that in my soul. I never thought I would, but yeah. Company officer is always the the correct answer. In you know, for what it's worth. But I do feel that backstep uh, drop back in my soul. Um,
0: There's nothing better than uh, than a a highly performing company that you're able to be the boss of right. Dude, uh, on fireground. No the doubt. Fire about it. No I doubt mean, about I say, it. and even not even on the fire ground. In the in the grocery store, yes, you know, uh, out with kids, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just being in the district, you know, those types of things. There's nothing better than that,
1: dude. Nailing it, hundred uh, percent. Best advice you have ever received.
0: So I struggled with this one earlier. I don't know, uh, um, you know, I'd go back to Kurt's thing and probably say it was my father-in-law saying, "Take care of my baby daughter," you know, uh, but to take care of my girl. But you know, in the in the business. I I would say, um, you know, many people, they always say, just put the work in. You know, I I guess that's it. Put the work in and just stick to your guns and work hard. And usually things will work out. So that's what I would tell guys. I mean, I don't know if guys were asking me, uh, I would just say, keep it simple. You know, be the best possible person you can be at every job you may have to perform. uh, And. You know, I think guys said that to me along the ways in different terms, maybe or different words, but I think it 's all the same it 's an encouragement to just don 't lose your drive uh because you 'll have bad days, you know no matter what rank you 'll have good days you 'll have bad days uh, but by and large, the good days always outweigh the bad days uh you know throughout any career, and they even become better days after you retire
1: it 's awesome i 've never met you in person, but I know your reputation for many people that I do know. And I can say that you do live that put in the work. So, uh, for what that's worth as a compliment, final question, <clears throat> number five, heavy fire and searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES?
0: So, um, So I was on a truck most of my career, so I'm always gonna go with the truck side of it, Uh, but you brought up something so I can speak a little bit to it um, is the VES. And I say that only um, a function of the explosion of training over the last 15, 20 years, uh, one of them is VES training over and over and over again. Um, And all I would say about that is I, I would wanna be, you know, in your question, I would want to be the first do truck on that fire. That that's what I would want to be, the first do truck. Um, but all I would say about VES is sometimes the doors the easier choice. And what I mean is, you know, we've stopped putting windows in some of our buildings on the second floor because we know if we have a fire in that building, somebody's going to take the time and effort to go get a ladder off the back of the rig and throw it to the window when they could have had the second floor searched if they walked up the stairs in the front door. So I don't know. just a little, another training nugget, I guess, to say, don't, you know, learn the skill, know it inside and out, make sure you can do it in any condition possible, but then have the uh, ability to size that building up and say, yeah, that might be a window to VES, but right now I'm going to the front door, and that may be where I go first. But I would want to be on the truck. So long way around your short answer you needed. There you go.
1: <laughs> there it is, the five questions for firefighters from Mr. Jim McCormick himself. Brother, thank you so much for answering them. I think I don't think I've ever – enjoyed a five questions as much i'm trying to think i know i say it each time but i that's, oh, why that's good
0: I, keep saying it you make it just like good job it's like that's good job cooley right well in i'm just saying box, it's like right? i am no. the
1: luckiest guy in the fire service because i get to interview uh people and ask them these questions and every time that's why i'm smiling so big and it's why i say every time um no yeah, you're doing
0: good things like we talked about you know just keep doing it it's uh i would tell you and i told you this before i'm going to give you some praise now The grind it takes to do what you're doing consistently over and over again uh, is a grind most people don't know. So I applaud you for it, and I know that you're helping a tremendous amount of people for doing it. So just keep up the good work.
1: I appreciate that, and I thank you for saying it. And uh, I know my wife appreciates it because she has to put up with Mm -hmm. me more than anything. Amanda's a saint. Um, I will say, how do people get a hold of you, get in touch with you, try to apply to come to FDTN? Uh, Give them the
0: rundown. So we just put out next year's calendar today. um, But the the email is just info, I-N-F-O at FDtraining.com and the website's FDtraining.com and then um, Facebook. You know, we have a Facebook Fire Department training page and my page too. So I think, you know, the rules are you got to have your page to get that page. But um, any of those, but usually email or you can send in an email off the website i'm much better at those than like facebook mail and that kind of stuff i'm going to do it but um it's easier especially when i'm not around a computer even though my phone can do it i just kind of use the email out there
1: beautiful beautiful there you go um everybody um what was i gonna say you you got me really excited because you said uh, we have to do this again. You said when we do this again. So I'm going to hold you to yeah, that. Yeah, we can do it. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So you have to come back. We'll have to hit some of the questions I didn't even get to today. Not to mention, I think you just scratched the surface for the audience also. So um, I'm going yeah, so- to read you a few comments, man. They said, awesome, awesome scrap tonight <laughs> from Brian Oswald. Uh, Todd Edwards said, thanks, Jim. Thank you so much, Jim. I learn so much every time. I am fortunate enough to hear you speak, sir. That's from Kyle uh, Romagus. Steve Miller said, awesome show, bringing out the facts. So 100%, man.
0: Thanks, guys.
1: Stephen Negley said, one of the most humble firefighters you will ever meet. Jim is one of the best. So, dude, you got people seeking your praise. So there's the compliments coming at you, and, and 100% deserved. Thank you so much for being the guest on Scrap. I want to hit, uh, let me see, I'll grab a hat here to show off. There's Scrappy. I can't see yep. my They're scrappy, so uh, if you guys want a hat, whatever, mutts don't scrap, get a hat. Um, The challenge coins are coming in. I'm really excited about that because I'm finally going to pay people back who have sent me challenge coins. Uh, I really do mean it. It's meant a lot to me to get them done, so that's going to happen. I'm trying to think of what else I wanted to announce. I think I put some notes here. Let me look. Uh, No, that's pretty much it. Mutts don't scrap. Jim McCormick coming in, dropping bombs, utterly killing it. He said he'd come back, so I'm super excited. Uh, Next guest who has to follow Jim is Dustin Martinez. It's coming up on October 3rd, so I get a small break uh, about a week, and then the Weekly Scrap will be back with Dustin Martinez. So he's the one who gets to follow Jim, so you guys can all heckle him on Facebook, telling him uh, good luck with that. Jim, thank you, sir, for being an unbelievably great guest.
0: Thank you, Corey. Keep up the good work, buddy.
1: Audience, thank you for your questions and your comments. I hope the tone stays silent. Unless it's burning, everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to The Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.